very, very much. Good morning, everyone. It is delightful to see all of you, to those of you online. We are so thankful that you're able to join us as well. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in our reading in the book of Romans, this time starting at Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. So I would invite you please to turn there. And then if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and infallible word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are, for, are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring uh, that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but it came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised 
for our justification. God adds His blessing to the reading of His holy word. Please be seated. So, by way of just a little bit of review, uh, and I will attempt to keep it a short review because we have a lot to cover um, in this next section. We began last week taking a look at chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, and noting how God's righteousness that is imputed to us is revealed through faith, through the prior revelation that was given. It's the same, the same God, the same plan of salvation, the same, uh, the same basis for being received into His presence is through faith. Apart from the law, uh, we cannot achieve righteousness uh, by obeying the law. And while that sounds like that's like there's something missing in that, uh, uh, what's missing is that, uh, of course, it's because our obedience can never be perfect. We cannot fully satisfy it. We are completely unable to because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, as the scriptures teach us. But now we have there in verse 21. The righteousness of God has been made clear or manifested apart from the law. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that and in his word, by the Lord Jesus and his ministry, that righteousness that can be imputed or or reckoned to our account is revealed to all who believe by the grace of God. In that belief, there's a recognition of sin. A recognition of how far we have fallen from the glory for which we were created. It's those who believe as they look for their redemption in the Lord Jesus at all, recognizing that He is the one who was sent uh, to accomplish God's plan. And by grace, He was sent for us. And we acknowledge that uh, by faith that Jesus Christ died and rose again for me. That's our, our faith in Him. But we recognize that that free gift, of course, wasn't free, was it? Not really. Free from our perspective, perhaps, because there's nothing we can, can do uh, to pay for it. But the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price um, so that it could be free for us. Our belief... Uh, must not be joined by any sense of uh, something additional that we must bring. I, I, I believe, but I also, have to, I also have to earn. If we have to earn our salvation and we, we believe that, we're not really believing in the gospel. We're believing in ourselves, is what that boils down to. And there's no salvation there. Only the Lord can give us that saving faith and that is something we should pray for. Pray for praying for His mercy, praying for His enlightenment, praying for His renewal by His grace. Because uh, this, this righteousness which was revealed to us through faith uh, is, a, is a righteousness that comes because behind this justification, behind this legal action, is one God and Father of all, the one who accomplishes it all, there are no other gods, uh, as we read um, in the uh, psalm this morning from Psalm 58. It, it, did you notice that term? Uh, it said, you know, how are you, how are you doing, O gods? Small g. 
the, the powers of this earth, both spiritual and temporal, that carry out the, the uh, task, the calling of the adversary rather than the calling of the creator. And of course, they utterly fail and utterly condemn. Jesus Christ, because of his work, secures for us our justification in the sight of the one true and living God. And all this is confirmed, as we saw at our, in verse 31 there, as the law is, is not overthrown, but fulfilled. All the, what the law was sent to do is accomplished as God applies it to our situation and opens our eyes to the fact that we are sinners in the sight of a holy and living God. And as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. So, I ended up with the thought last time of asking the question, is, is not the whole Mosaic Code and the, all the rituals that were there, uh, is not that the Grand Testament uh, to the truth that it's through ritual and duty that men come to God? That is certainly what the Jews uh, of Paul's day and earlier and, and beyond uh, thought. We've got the law. We have all these things. We have the prophets. Um, we're going to follow through. You remember the rich young ruler who came confidently before the Lord Jesus and said, I've done all these things from my youth. What else do I lack? He figured he was a shoe-in until the Lord Jesus zipped open his heart when he said, why don't you just uh, get rid of your wealth and then follow me. And the young man went away sorrowing because he had great riches and preferred to serve those and hold on to those rather than serving the one true king. In other words, Jesus revealed that he was an idolater, ultimately, worshiping his wealth and his position rather than his God. Any, anyone who puts their hopes in practicing external religion in order to have standing with God is not just a little misguided and confused, although that may be part of it, they're lost. They're lost. Because there's no salvation in those things. Now, Paul is then moves to Abraham and is laboring to show that the righteousness of God was imputed to men before Moses, before the giving of all the law and all the codes and all the rituals and all of the structure and all that, before, before Israel was a nation, and in the case of Abraham, even before the actual sign of the covenant, circumcision was given. If Paul can show that God's righteousness is imputed to men through faith without the trappings of the external law, then he establishes his argument that works are irrelevant when it comes to being justified. So he turns to Abraham. Now, with uh, Abraham here, if, if anybody's story is going to count for something in the Jewish mind, it would be Abraham, wouldn't it? Um, as we uh, read in John chapter 8, uh, they very proudly proclaim, Abraham is our father. 
course, they were trying to uh, say that Jesus was illegitimate and Jesus wasn't having it. He said, if Abraham was your father, you'd believe in what I'm telling you. But you're of your father, the devil, and his works are the ones you're doing. We talked about God's righteousness being revealed through faith. Well, now we're going to talk about God's righteousness and how it's actually acquired. And it's just as it's revealed through faith, it's also acquired through faith. But Abraham's story here sets the pattern for yours. And in these opening, uh, uh, opening verses, as well as uh, towards the end of this section, Paul is wanting to remind them that by asking these questions of what, of what the basis of Abraham's deliverance and redemption and acceptance really was. What did Abraham gain concerning salvation by the flesh or his works? What shall we say, he says, was gain? He's our forefather according to the flesh. Was he justified by works? If so, he has something to brag about. If you and I are justified by works, by all the good stuff that we do, and we're made right before God because of all that, then we have something to brag about. We can walk through life feeling pretty smug and pretty confident that after all, we walked down an aisle. We made a decision. We prayed a prayer. We went to church. We read the Bible. We did this. We did that. We did the other. So hey, I'm good. And if that's our, if that's your mentality, that's our mentality, you're lost. Because your faith is in you and not in the God who saves. Paul's answer to these questions, these rhetorical questions uh, that he asked at the beginning, the answer is, what did Abraham gain? Paul's answer is, nothing. He gained absolutely nothing as far as salvation is concerned. Uh, by the works of the flesh. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the flesh means works of any kind or anything that may be true of us or that may belong to us on which we tend to rest for our salvation and of which we tend to boast. Abraham certainly gained great things, but not through works. He gained them through faith alone. And that faith was demonstrated in a couple of ways here. Notice uh, uh, it says here, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness there in verse 3. Now the particular thing that he's speaking of is in Genesis chapter 15. But I, I'd like to actually go a little bit earlier even in, in Abraham's story. Because what, what we see in Abraham are, is a pattern. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, we read this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. It's interesting that Hebrews uh, 11 doesn't mention the whole issue about Abraham's offspring and, and all of that. It mentions leaving home. He obeyed God by leaving Haran and going to the promised land. 
And we spoke of this um, in our leadership class the other the other night, a little bit, uh, where, yeah, uh, Abraham was in all likelihood um, a practicing pagan in Haran. He, we're not told anything about uh, anybody in his family actually being Yahweh worshipers. Now, maybe that maybe it was there. We're just—it's not recorded for us. In all likelihood, um, if he was uh, like everybody else in that area of the world, he wouldn't have been worshiping Yahweh. But Yahweh comes to him and calls him, and Abraham obeys. But what is behind that obedience? Was it just a blind matter of obedience? No. The Lord called him to go to a place that he would inherit, inherit, and Abraham's obedience was based upon his faith, that he actually believed what God had said. So there's this pattern of obedience that began early in Abraham, right at the beginning of Abraham's interactions with God, a pattern that would follow through in much of his life. And, and uh, as we read in the particular thing that he's talking about is from uh, Genesis chapter 15. And I invite you to turn there. Genesis 15. So Abra, uh, the, the word of Yahweh comes to Abram in a vision. This is before he's even uh, given uh, uh, Abraham his full name. Uh, this is right after Abram has been blessed by Melchizedek and he'd rescued Lot, remember, and had the, fought the... Cato-Lamarian alliance. I love saying that word. There's something that just rolls out. But uh, the Cato-Lamarian uh, alliance of those five kings that uh, came down and fought against Sodom and Gomorrah, and they hauled everybody off, including Lot and all their stuff, and Abraham took his 300 guys, went up there, trounced them, brought everything back, and, and on the way gave tithes to Melchizedek. By the way, there's another incident, so... Tithing is one of the things that later would be codified in the Mosaic Code, part of the law. But before all that was given, Abraham gave tithes as, because Melchizedek was, was a priest of the Most High God, of Yahweh. Well, anyway, that's a rabbit trail that I don't want to go down or we'll never get through. So, this pattern of belief here, though, um, as we see then in chapter 15. After all of that, this vision comes to Abram, and God says to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, his servant. And, a and um, Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And, and behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham had a pattern of obedience, whether he understood it or not. Because he also had a pattern of belief. He trusted in what Yahweh said to him. 
In the New Geneva Study Bible, uh, there's, a, there's a, a study note on, this, on these verses, particularly on verse 6. That reads this way, Abraham believed the promise of the birth of an heir from the dead. In other words, as we've already read, I mean, he's, he's an old guy. Uh, he and his wife passed childbearing years. And yet, as it were, from the dead, God was going to bring forth an heir. Uh, and yes, there is a definite foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ coming from the dead as the heir of all things. Um, and, it's, and it goes on to say, and, and God counted Abraham to be righteous, to be meeting his covenant demand. Abraham's justification by faith is a model of our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's sacrifice for sin, and God's crediting his righteousness to us by faith, which we have just read about uh, from Romans 4 already this morning. I want you to consider the implication of these verses here when we're back in uh, Romans. I want you to consider the implications of these verses for our understanding of God's one plan of salvation from before the foundation of the earth. These sentences all by themselves destroy the notion that the Lord saved Old Testament people in a different manner and on a different basis than he does in the New Testament. In other words, it destroys the position on salvation that uh, the, the dispensational viewpoint puts forward. God at different, different, different time, periods of time saved people in different ways, on different uh, bases, uh, bases. The fact of the matter is, is that God's people have always been saved through faith in God's person, in his testimonies, and in his prescribed substitutionary atonement. Always. And he has established, uh, since he is, the, he is one God, as we saw that in Romans chapter 3, um, one God uh, uh, for all peoples and all times, he's established one way of salvation, which is through faith in our great substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, for all people and all times. Prior to the coming of Jesus, everything pointed towards him. And after his earthly ministry, of course, everything is shown to be fulfilled in him. And with that salvation, through faith, comes blessedness. Blessedness. Paul would say to the Philippian church, we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's joy, there's freedom, there's peace in the fact that what's really involved in, in uh, um, our redemption is not the physical act, in this particular case, of circumcision. And by, circumcision, by the way, is really standing for all of the law, for all fulfilling all of it. Um, we put no confidence in the flesh, we put our confidence in him. And then Paul goes on to describe different aspects of this blessedness that is ours when we have God's righteousness imputed to us through faith. Uh, first we see in verse 4 that this is, that part, there's a blessedness in the receiving 
of a gift. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. As his due. Um, most of you of employable age um, uh, have probably received a paycheck in the, in the not-too-distant past, or maybe you're anticipating one. Some of you are in between jobs, and you're, you're uh, hope, definitely anticipating the next time that check comes in the mail. But when, you, when we have our, well, let me put it this way. That phrase, living paycheck to paycheck. Anybody ever done that in your life? Yeah. How, 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 peaceful, how at peace are you living in that situation? Not very. Yeah, exactly right. Not very well. Um, if you're not sure when it's going to come, you're not sure how much it's going to be, that can be a challenge. I remember when I first was contemplating, and my wife will remember this very well, uh, going down to St. Helens, Oregon, and starting a church down there. I had uh, one of the elders in the Tacoma Church said to me, uh, how are you going to eat? That's a church plan. You know, it's not like there's that income stream coming in. What's, how's the Lord going to take care of that? And uh, yeah, it's a little nerve-wracking. Uh, when we first started getting into that uh, uh, way of approaching ministry, there was a lot of effort put into having to raise funds and recognizing that, you know, that sense of being utterly dependent upon the Lord from week in, week in and week out, and wondering, you know, if, uh, if we would be able to eat, <laughs> if we would be able to pay our bills and all of that. And yet... If that's the way we live, spiritually speaking, because we're, we're thinking, I'm putting in the work, I've got to get the money, I've got, I've got to get the spiritual credit, I've got to do all these things, is it going to be enough? Is that the way you want to live? Because if it is, again, you're depending upon your ability to satisfy some employer in this case, the employer is God, who is infinite and eternal, who is beyond your comprehension, and who you and I, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, can never satisfy and will never earn a sufficient paycheck. Now, I'm happy to tell you, and of course the evidence is before you, that uh, in all those years, that, see, when was that? That was 1995. Yeah. Never had a month where I didn't have a paycheck. Never one. Never had a month when we couldn't pay our bills. Clearly never had a month when I didn't eat. <laughs> this used to be loose. <laughs> the Lord provides for us in incredible ways, does he not? But if we live thinking that we've got to earn it, there's no blessedness in that. The blessedness comes because 
This is a gift to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Belief is not a work. Um, it's just an acknowledgement of what God, that what God has said and who he is is absolutely true. And in this case, the receiving of a gift is absolutely necessary. You, you cannot earn your standing with God, and he owes you nothing. Second blessedness. The blessedness of absolute forgiveness. And we already read verse 5 there. Forgiveness for those of us who are undeserving. A forgiveness that's based in the very character and declaration of God. He's the one who justifies the ungodly. And David speaks of this. Um, again, uh, Paul started with Abraham and he goes to another giant in the Jewish mind, of course, King David. And, and David, speaking again of this God's consistent plan of how, uh, of, of how we are restored to him, it is uh, when our lawless deeds in our undeserving condition are forgiven, the sins are covered by the blood, that when the Lord does not hold our sins against us, but rather gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. This absolute forgiveness is to those of us, uh, for all of us, we, we deserve nothing, but he gives it to us. That's what blessedness is there. And this forgiveness leads to our justification in his sight. He doesn't have to do that. But he delights to redeem those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the earth. And this forgiveness leads to even greater blessing. Take a look at Psalm 32. In the first couple of verses, this is, this is the, the, the passage that, that Paul has just quoted. Blessed is the one whose transgression of the law is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity. Note the covenant name there. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he goes on to say, let me, let, me, let me talk about my condition when I'm not in that forgiven state. My bones are wasting away. I'm groaning all day uh, long. I feel your hand heavy upon me. My strength is dried up. And so what does he do? He responds in faith to this covenant making and keeping God and says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then therefore, just let's pray unto the Lord and let's humble ourselves before him. As he goes on to say down, down in verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love, God's faithful love surrounds the one who trusts in him. And so then be glad and rejoice and shout for joy all those of you who are upright in heart. Think of the blessings of this absolute forgiveness that Paul is mentioning here. The blessing of crimes forgotten and covered. 
the blessing of our standing before God restored. Again, to quote uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, we are ungodly, we are helpless, we are hopeless. God does it all. It is done, it is all done to us and we receive it passively from God. If you try to do anything to save yourself, it means that you do not understand this. And I pray that everyone here understands that your redemption, the blessedness of that, comes not from you trying to earn it, but from by faith believing that God has already done it and done it well. There's another aspect of blessedness here that Paul speaks of, and you probably notice as I read through it, how many times the word circumcision? It, 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 yeah, I kind of I tried to read it slowly and keep all of the relationships between all the phrases and clauses clear. But you have to you, you have to really concentrate because of, of uh, how he goes through that argument. In verses nine, we're again we're back in uh, Romans chapter four, in verses nine through twelve. He says, "Okay, now is this though just for the Jews, the circumcised?" Or is it for the uncircumcised as well? Gentiles, those who are not part of the, the Jewish religion. And of course his answer is that it's for everyone. But then he has to, he's making the case for that. And goes back and forth about uh, when Abraham was circumcised and what the nature of true circumcision is and, and, and all of that. And here is where he makes the point that Abraham believed God and it was counted to his account as righteousness before circumcision, before any of this, uh, the outward ritual, before any of the structure of Judaism, before Moses was on the scene, before the nation of Israel was on the scene, before all of that stuff was there, Abraham was counted as righteous before God because he believed. And it didn't have anything to do with circumcision. The circumcision would be required of Abraham, would it not? But it was after he believed. And that's Paul's point. That's Paul's point. Of course, he's talking to folks that are just bound and determined that we've got to do things uh, according to the law of Moses if, if, if uh, you know, we're actually going to be Christians. And without recognizing, it's not that many of the things in the law of Moses are fantastic and there are principles about by which we ought to live and in our western culture have been the foundation of much of our laws and so on and we still live by many of those principles if if they're upright citizens and all of that but those things don't save us and of course it wasn't as if the rituals of the old testament actually saved anybody then either in the case of circumcision, as Paul points out here, it was a sign. It was a seal of the relationship that was established by God's initiation and Abraham's faith in response. Same thing with baptism today, which, as Paul points out in Colossians chapter 2, uh, baptism is just the circumcision of Christ. It's the sign of a better covenant, but it functions in exactly the same way. That's why 
we understand that baptism is not, uh, though it can have this element, but it's not so much a declaration of our faith. It's a declaration of what God has done and that our faith is in what God has done. And that we're sealed in Him. Not sealed because we did something. Not sealed because we came to Him, but because He, on the contrary, came to us. But the Jews, like many in the visible church today, emphasize the necessity of rituals um, in order to please God and to have standing with Him. Paul's argument says, no, Abraham was justified before any of those external rituals were instituted. So therefore, justification can only be through faith and not external works. It means that our salvation is not tied to other external practices of Judaism either. Circumcision being one, of course, but dietary laws, feast days, all those things. There's a great interest in those things among many in the evangelical world these days. And um, I'm constantly getting phone calls about folks that want to uh, come and... Um, you know, do a Passover for us in our service. And it's like, uh, we do that every week. And it's called the Lord's Supper. All those things are fulfilled in, in Christ. And while those things are instructive, uh, we, w we would not, and we might even uh, want to see some value in going through that sometime and thinking about it. Uh, but we wouldn't do it as an act of worship. It would simply be as a, a way to further our understanding of what we're actually worshiping when we come into the Lord's house. Of course, there are some, there are some uh, denominations and groups that, that hold that you, you have to do those things, or otherwise you're not fully, fully Christ. And they've, they need to go back and read Romans 3 and 4. You need to read the book of Galatians, which, where Paul argues so strongly against that mentality. What do the Jerusalem Council say in the midst of a similar kind of controversy, right? I mean, the, the Jew, Jewish believers were saying, well, the Gentiles, they've got to be circumcised. They've got to do this. They've got to do that. They've got to do the other thing. And the Jerusalem Council came back and said, absolutely not. What they said was, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God and admonish them not to, not to indulge in uh, pagan practices and fleshly practices and encourage them to be blessed in the Lord Jesus. And what was the response uh, among the, the Gentile Christians that received that letter? They rejoiced. Yeah, because they were uh, uh, basically declared, you're free of those things because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That's the apostle in the book of Galatians. Well, that's freedom, isn't it? What a blessed joy it is to be free of the shackles of having to perfectly perform stuff that no person ever living has ever been able to do with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes to us not just by example, but by promise. And so this blessedness that is ours as we 
uh, have righteousness imputed to our account through faith is a recognition that this promise comes to us freely. Verses 13 through 15. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith, the practice of faith. Faith that's in accord with the standards of God's revelation that had been given before. You know, the promises that were made to Abraham were not just for his physical offspring, were they? They were for all those who are redeemed by the same means that Abraham was through faith. You saw that uh, in there in verse 12. Walking in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And this plan is a fixed one. When you think of the righteousness of faith, it's, it's tied to God's standards. Compare that with uh, chapter 3 and verse 27 where we read about the law of faith. That this, this is the plan God has put into place. It's not, it's, it, it doesn't change with the times. God doesn't look at humanity and say, well, you know, the last plan didn't work, so I'm going to try something else. He set things forth from before the foundation of the, the earth. This plan is fixed, and it was freely bestowed on Abraham and his spiritual progeny without any regard for his or our worthiness. I mean, the worthiness is all in the sacrifice that's offered on our behalf, our Lord Jesus Christ. Take a look at uh, the book of Galatians. I've mentioned it a few times. Uh, look at... Uh, Chapter 3. And this is something that... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say something silly. I'm glad Paul said this. Uh, uh, we have a tendency when we think about being the offspring of Abraham or the, uh, you know, we, we, when we're, we, we tend to think of us. Right? And they're worthy inheritors of all these things. And there's a sense in which we are. That we're, we are uh, heirs according to the promise. Paul makes that uh, clear here uh, in, this, in this book of uh, Galatians. But read this carefully now with me. Verse 16. Now the, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. What does that mean? It means that ultimately, the seed, the offspring that inherits all the promises made to Abraham, land, people, uh, dominion, everything, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, when we're hidden in him and we're joint heirs with him, we share in that. But he is the heir. That's Paul's point here. And so we must be hidden in him if we are going to escape the wrath of God when we fail to, break, uh, fail to keep the law. If we're going to know the blessings of the promise, we have to be hidden in him. We have to be trusting and resting in him alone. Because he's the heir. Um, in, 
in a sense, uh, it's kind of like we're around him, and we've all when you when you go into a, when you go in some place, somebody else, somebody that you wouldn't normally be allowed to go, maybe some kind of venue, some kind of event, something else. Uh, where somebody else, a friend of yours, a, a family member, whatever, got an invitation, but you didn't, and you show up with them, what do you do when you get to the door and you're with that person? You go, I'm with him. <laughs> right? In, in essence, that's really, Christ is the heir, and I'm with him. I'm with him. My invitation comes through him. My right to be there comes through him. And him alone. And this is given as a free promise to us. What an incredible blessing that is. And it comes motivated by grace. We see that in verses 16 and 17. Oh, I'm looking at Galatians. And like, no, this, this isn't computing. All right, back to Romans 4. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. It's of God's grace. Grace is necessary. God's unmerited favor. It's necessary because faith is necessary. I mean, if righteousness was ours because of our works, grace would be superfluous. Wouldn't be grace at all, right? We would be owed. But it's unmerited undeserved favor. And so we must come through, through, uh, through faith. Not our works. If our works had any uh, merit, then faith would be pointless as well. At least faith in God. We'd be having faith in ourselves. Our works can never accomplish true righteousness. And because of that, salvation can only be by grace through faith. Grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Revealed by the scriptures alone. To the glory of God alone. What peace to rest in the compassion of our Savior. To, compa to rest in His finished work. And then that leads to the final, uh, the final point here that Paul is making. Where uh, in these verses uh, 18 through 22, he's really describing uh, Abraham's faith. What, what constituted this saving faith? And it's a blessedness that comes through righteousness. And it's a blessedness of genuine hope. Hope that is not um, wishful thinking kind of hope but an eager expectation, anticipation of what you know is certain. Hope, verse 18, in God's plan. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he's been told. There's, here's the plan. Abraham, you're going to, you're going to be the head of, of, a, of a people that you'll never be able to number. That's the plan. And he absolutely believes it. And because he believed in it, it was counted to him for righteousness. Verse 19, he has, his hope goes beyond just the plan. He, notice he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
He not only had hope in the plan, he had hope in the process. <laughs> Think about it. Okay, Lord, I don't know how this is going to how this is going to happen, but we're going to follow the process. Process you've ordained for bringing children into the world. He has hope in the process that God is going to carry through in that process, and of course the Lord does. And all of that based on hope in the promises. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. Let that thought sink in. And ask yourself about the times when you have wavered about the promises of God. This statement regarding Abraham is remarkable. No distrust made him waver regarding the promise of God. May God grant that that could be said of us. That no distrust uh, of ourselves, no distrust of God, no distrust of, of what the Lord has said would cause us to waver from the promise that in Jesus Christ is our redemption and in Him alone. Certainly this is the blessedness that Abraham had. And look at, I love this, uh, that is why he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But look, did you see that phrase right in the middle of verse uh, 20? No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he did what? As he worshiped. And a lot of times we think, oh, my faith is weak. Struggling, got lots of doubts. You want to strengthen your faith? It's not going to happen just by wishful thinking that it might. I'm going to buck it up. I'm going to pull myself up and, and, and start thinking positive. The old Norman Vincent Peale heresy, right? Just going to think positive. No. When you come into the presence of a holy God and worship Him and are reminded by the saints of His glories and His wonders and His faithfulness and His goodness and His provision and His promises and all of those things, our faith is strengthened. And that's the way God intended it. As we worship Him and reflect upon His glories, we are encouraged to rest our faith in Him. And it will strengthen our hope so that... Uh, no matter what the circumstances of life are around us, we will not despair. Well, let's draw this to a close. To have the righteousness of God declared to be yours, justification by faith through grace, by grace through faith, as he imputes Christ's righteousness to our account, in order for that to happen, God must act in grace towards you by making your spiritually dead heart alive. He must grant you faith in Jesus Christ. He grants you repentance from sin and recreates your soul, takes out the heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. No human law can do that. And in fact, even God's law was not designed to do that. God's law was given to bring you and I to the realization that we cannot achieve His righteousness. That our only hope is in Christ. 
So as in Abraham's case, you and I have no reason to boast in the flesh. And that's really the summary uh, there in verses 23 through 25. This was all written not just for Abraham, but for us. Abraham didn't have anything to boast about. Neither do you and I. Paul, earlier on in this letter, had reminded them uh, in chapter 1 that the just shall live by faith. And now he, he draws this part of his teaching to a close here in chapter 4 by reminding uh, his readers that God's plan was not just for Abraham. It was for those that by God's grace have the same faith that Abraham had in the one true and living God and what he said, what he did, and what he promised. Aren't you glad there's good news for the guilty? That the justification by, the justification by faith took the world by storm during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it is a rallying cry for all of us as we consider as as Martin Luther did, as Paul did before him, and many others since, that we are saved only by God's grace. The, the, the solas of the Reformation are hanging about us here in our, in our sanctuary. Let's take those to heart and be encouraged as we live for the glory of God, justified by His, uh, His goodness, His plan, through faith that he gives to us. What an incredible blessing. What an incredible gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices, that you did not uh, assign to us the task of figuring out how we might uh, somehow please you and be restored to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us never to trust in our own works, in our own wisdom, but only in you, in your plan, in your wisdom, in your Savior. Grant us new hearts that are able to respond to your grace and goodness in repentance and faith so that we might be added to the number of the redeemed, adopted, into your family as those who have been justified, declared righteous by your amazing love and grace because Jesus satisfied it all. And we pray these things in his name.